What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 46 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for March 10th, 2017. You could have literally picked any other podcast, but you picked this one. And I'm just so thankful. I just don't know who to thank. I want to thank Mike, my co-host, and I want to thank my manager, and I want to thank God, and I want to thank... uh, Oh, sorry. Kind of had it. I'm having a slight fever dream right now. You really, going, really Mike? like us. You really, really like us. Actually, people don't like us, Mike, because we've been getting a lot of bad reviews on iTunes. Yeah, and whatever. By the way, it's actually not a lot of bad reviews. No. I just choose to focus on the bad reviews because I think they're funny. And honestly, negativity is more entertaining, I think to people and drama than uh especially when it's the guy these uh 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 casual unsolved mystery fans yeah that was news to me i didn't know that we were just casual fans i had no idea yeah we're casual unsolved mysteries fans josh even though we're the only people that have created an unsolved mysteries podcast we're casual fans and, you know, when I went and got uh, Robert Stack tattooed on my arm, I didn't know that I didn't even know who Robert Stack was. He was actually just a part of the flash on the wall at the tattoo place. And I was like, hey, who's that old guy in the trench coat? They're like, oh, yeah, it's Robert Stack from Unsolved Mysteries. Well, I've only casually seen the show, but go ahead and put him on my arm anyway forever. Yeah. That's th- those are one of the many jackass comment reviews that we get on a uh, comment. There review. are many uh, other podcasts. Uh, there's not. There are not many other podcasts that are exclusively covering unsolved mysteries. So it's just us. Yeah, just us. But we don't exclusively cover unsolved mysteries. We also talk about other things. But yeah. on this particular episode, we're talking about some unsolved mystery segments here. And I hope you. I hope you're ready for it. Ha- quickly, Mike, how has your week been? Uh, it was fine. It's been good so far. Uh, my parents are out of the house because they're having a little mini vacation uh, using a gift that my grandmother gave them. They're going to go stay. They're staying at a hotel somewhere. So they'll be home sometime tomorrow. A, a uh, gift that your grandma gave them. So your grandma gave them one of those like internet pictures where the frames are moving and it looks like a little like no. Scene. They they gave she gave them certificates to be able to stay. At I a just hotel. don't know how they can take an internet image that with moving pictures on it and use that that's, at a hotel. That's not what I said. I don't know what you're talking about, Josh. She said gift. She gave him a gift. A gift. Oh, gift. Oh, yes. Gift, of course. I only know internet things now. I've seen too many memes. Uh, I forgot. I forgot maybe I forgot world. to put the T at the end, or maybe it's one of those where it sounded like I said gif when I said gift. gift. Uh, or maybe maybe I was just being a smartass. I think oh, that it's, could, the it, it, it's the latter, definitely. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, everything's been fine on my end. Um, my stepdad actually gave me 30 bucks for just, I guess, feeding the cat and doing some things around the house where they're gone. For looking, for looking sexy. Yeah, because I'm sexy <laughs> and I know it. That would be really – how awkward would that be? Hey, Mike, here's $30. You've been looking good lately. <laughs> how would that make you feel, Mike? Because I'm too sexy for my shirt. Too sexy for my. Dun, 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 that dun, actually dun. could be a new gimmick for you, uh, the shirtless <laughs> movie critic. <laughs> now I'm not really, I'm not in good enough shape to really pull that off, unless you want to see my hairy chest. No, 
Um, anyway, that was definitely awkward. So, speaking of hair, I heard you got a haircut. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. That's the cheesiest. <laughs> so, speaking of hair. Oh, man. Is this thing on? Oh, oh, I flew in from New York yesterday and boy, are my arms tired. <laughs> oh, whoa. <laughs> hey. Um, yes, I got a haircut today. That's uh, well, anyway, some backstory about what me and Mike have been trying to do the last 45 minutes is uh, uh, Mike recorded a bonus segment for the Patreon last week, which uh, you can support that if you want. It's uh, patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. You can kick in some monies and it helps us a lot. Um, he was recording a bonus segment. And we found, whoa, Mike sounds really good. He sounds really clear and crisp, and his mic sounds awesome. And we wanted to get that same quality for this podcast. So we tried, and I can't say how this is going to sound. I think what I'm going to say, what, what I'm thinking here, my prediction is Mike's going to sound really good this week. I'm going to sound like I'm on Skype, like I'm phoned in. Um, not as bad as the early days, but it's the quality is not going to be as good on my end this time around. Um, but enjoy Mike's clear, crisp voice for once, because uh, I think uh, Skype sometimes hides the nuances of his sexy voice. And now you get to hear it in all of its glory. You get to hear all my subtle nuances. Yes. All that that uh, Pacific northwest goodness going on in that accent there. You don't really have much of an accent at all. Your, your lack no, of accent. I don't. Me. Well, I can have accents. I can do different accents and accents and stuff like that. I, I've been told I have a slight southern twang to how I say things. Yeah, certain Which, things, yeah, I can kind of notice that. That's unfortunate. Yeah, you, you, you don't want it. You, I don't want to have that twang, damn it. I don't want to sound like I'm from the south. Yeah, I mean, I, I really don't. Um, <laughs> I try try to hide it, but yeah, especially when I get upset. Oh my god, it's like when I get upset, the word "ain't" is thrown out <laughs> so much. I'm like, you know, like they ain't, they ain't even let me know anything about the the bill, and they ain't contact me, and I ain't doing shit. I ain't paying that bullshit. Fuck that. And it's just it's like, oh god, don't get him upset. He turns into a dumbass. <laughs> But yeah, thanks for uh, joining us, everybody. If you want to like our group on Facebook, it's a very lively group. It's uh, facebook.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. That's our fan page, but there's also a group of the same name. And I don't even know if I have to promote that because people always seem to find it. We have people joining every day. I'm guessing they're people who just stumble upon us and then maybe they'll figure out that we have a podcast to that group. Hey, great. However you find out about it, okay with me. Um, let's get into some mysteries, shall we? Um, oh, you're first, not going to talk about, you know, your haircut or you just like, I mean, there's really nothing else. To <laughs> there's say, nothing else to say. You just got a haircut. shorter. The, <laughs> it's shorter than it previously was. And I left the lady's house. Yes. This, I follow this lady around because she, she just, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm uncomfortable with change. So rather than <laughs> so going just to like, new, I need to ha- I need to have the same lady. Yeah, well, rather than going to a new salon with new people, you know, and trying to explain to them, like, hey, do it like you did last time. Well, they didn't do my hair last time, so it's just easier going to the same. Yeah, uh, I can see that. I think with haircut, people like like barbers and haircut, what the fuck? (laughs) Haircut ladies, I don't know what the (laughs) that's the name of a female haircutter. Now, now I really am like, like ringing true all those reviews that say that we're dumb. Uh, 
anyway, it's. I think that's the, your barber is someone that you're gonna want to keep the same one of. That's not Barnett. someone that you keep. I don't know. <laughs> that's probably not a real thing. The barbette cannot be real. You don't want to bounce around different hair cutteries, you know, because once you find someone you like it, that's that's when it comes to hair, that's someone you want to stick with. Well, I pretty much I just like my hair cut short. So my mom just does it for free. Hell yeah. Save 15 bucks. So, yeah. So let's get into let's get into some unsolved mysteries, shall we? Um, This first case is one that we just kind of picked as we remember it. I saw it recently and there there are some interesting things to it. It's definitely one of the better miracle segments. Um, It does have have its issues here and there. Nothing like a storm in hell or anything like that or the angel uh, segment. With the goofy-looking angel. But this is the Blinking Crucifix. I don't know why they call it the Blinking Crucifix, because from what I've seen in the segment, it sounds like it's more like the Crucifix has its eyes closed. And then it's not it has blinking. its eyes open at some point. Yeah, um, but it's not like blinking. Yeah. So this happened at the Holy Trinity Church. To me personally, that sounds like it's one of the most generic names for a church imaginable. I'm pretty sure there's probably like 50 or 100 other churches with that name. The only thing more generic would be like West Side Baptist, North Side Baptist, South Side, any any side, any compass direction, and then just add side at the end of it, and then Baptist. Here in the South, that's a very common. Uh, West you know. Side Baptist, yo. Well, then you have downtown Baptist, which is like it's such a big church in Jacksonville that they actually have like political sway over some of the like laws that are passed here, which is fucked up. But whatever. What are you going to do? So this case of the crucifix that closed its eyes and then opened them was located in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. Uh, The Holy Trinity Church is a community Catholic church in Ambridge, Pennsylvania. Above the altar is a large life-size crucifix, which they called the Blinking Crucifix. Now, this occurred on March 24th, 1989. Uh, There was a special mass that was held at the Holy Trinity Church to commemorate Good Friday. Over 300 Catholics in a prayer group were at the church that day to celebrate Mass when Jim Sitskovic, uh, that guy's last name is really. That guy's hard name to is just painful. It's literally people, for those out there who think we're stupid and can't read, tell me how to pronounce this. You know it alls. It's spelled C V I T K O V I C. Now, I can get the I T K O V I C. That's it, Kavik or something. It Kavik. But how it-ka-vic. do you pronounce C and V together? Those aren't supposed to be. Sit. 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 I don't know. I bet the scat man could pronounce it. I'm the scat man. So, Jim Sitkovic. A server and nephew of the priest was praying. He looked up and he saw that the eyes in the crucifix, which were normally open, were actually closed. He told his brother Tom, who saw that the eyes were closed too, but he told Jim to go to the other side to see if it was just a light or if it was real. And he looked there and the eyes were still closed. 
After the end of the Mass, the brothers began crying, and their uncle, Reverend Vince, Vincent Sipkovic, asked them why and told them that the eyes were closed. Vincent and another priest went to look at the eyes, and they saw that they were closed, and called the man who had recently painted the crucifix, Dominic Leo, and asked him what he saw. He looked up, and he was shocked to see that the eyes were also closed, and he began crying as well. I don't get the crying thing. I, I get it. I get it. You know, it, it's it's uh, if you're a believer and you feel like you've legitimately experienced a miracle, um, it's uh, it, it. I don't know. It's powerful. It. I guess. I, I guess. But yeah. And I mean, Dominic, for, I mean, even, for me, even... I, I'm being, you know, I'm a complete outsider and I'm like, why? Why are you crying? Why are you crying? <laughs> why are you crying? <laughs> Cabrone, why are you crying? Uh, no, but Dominic Leo, he even cried in the uh, Unsolved Mystery segment on yeah. this. Like he's he's talking about, you know, he's like, and I looked into his eyes, and his eyes were closed. Because I remember, I remember painting his eyes. And I painted the blue, and and I and it looked like he was crying. I saw a tear, and all this. He, he, you know, I mean, yeah, he looked. He definitely looked like he was convinced. Yeah, for sure. So a ladder was was soon brought in to look at the crucifix, and Dominic got the first look at it. He saw that the left eye was completely closed and the right eye was slightly open. Another parishioner, state trooper Chris Marion, was skeptical until he went up to the ladder. He saw the eyes, and he realized that it had not been tampered with. Sue Tolfa, another member, said the crucifix used to be in an area where anyone could light the big candle, and she remembered that every time she would look up, the eyes were open until the day at the Mass. That one, that same day, one parishioner claimed that he received a divine message, which read, I have given this sign for all those who have faithfully come. Truly my presence is, in with, is within this church. Within the months to come, many will flock to see what I have done. Welcome them, just as the people of Medjugorje welcome those who flock to see my mother. Interestingly, many of the Holy Trinity Church parishioners are of Yugoslavian descent, where which is where Medjugorje is lo- located, and four former Ambridge priests were born there. However, since many are skeptical about this case, myself in particular, some believe it was a hallucination or even a hoax. Since March 24, thousands of people have flocked to the church to see the crucifix for themselves, and even if it didn't blink, many believe a miracle still occurred because of how many people came to pray. And that's great. That's that's wonderful. I mean, that that is that is a really wonderful thing. Now, I have to, t- I have to temper Ambridge that wonderfulness um, by saying it's wonderful just so long as there's there's never a financial opportunity taken in this yeah and exactly all this. as long which as tends not, to happen yeah. anytime there's a miraculous thing that happens you know there's you know somebody out there sees gold in them their hills yeah. and somehow or another it's exploited well yeah i mean it's a miracle for the small town because this is a town that is starting to completely fade off the map because of the steel mills that closed yeah the it was steel becoming mills, another um flint michigan basically yeah the steel mills were the life of the town and once they closed then it really started to die so and the crucifix had actually been at that church since the 1930s i also want to say in the segment uh you you said you saw a segment recently right yeah i did isn't that the scariest looking yes it is i mean and honestly even (laughs) even the crucifix is creepy to me 
Well, the like the crucifix is hung up like really high up in the church, which is yeah. not in and of itself unusual. But this ladder that they use, it's like this old school wooden Rickety ladder. Wooden ladder. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's designed very weird. And I, I I guess this is an old fashioned design. It's got it's the normal like ladder where it's like it forms like a uh, you know like an arrow shape, like an upside you know where it's like the two ladders come together to make a point at the top. But then at in the middle of the ladder, there's an additional ladder that just goes straight up. So it's like an upside down Y, basically, to describe what this ladder looks like. And so not only do you have to climb up the bottom part of the ladder, which is sloped, which is fine, but then you climb the skinny, like the Y part of it, the, the tail of it, up like as high as you can. And I'm thinking like this thing could like this thing's going to crack any second or tip over. It did not look like a stable ladder at all. I, I, maybe it's my fear of heights, but that was a big detail that always stuck with me about that segment. They're, they're going to need ladder. a miracle to save themselves from the danger that that ladder provides. Real. And one guy like straddled the very top of the ladder as he's looking at it. I'm like, bro, you must have a death wish because that <laughs> thing is not safe. Um, it is kind of ironic that a church has a ladder that's completely unsafe that they use for things like this maybe this shows their confidence you know they're yeah exactly they're testing their they're they're showing their faith in god that uh they believe that that ladder is not going to break and send them plummeting down onto the pews yeah exactly um this case also there's another uh kind of uh my stepdad was watching it with me as well, and he actually made a good point that some people might look at this as the opposite of a miracle, of a good thing for the church, because think about this. Jesus' eyes were open. His eyes closed. <laughs> you know, he had a good point that, oh my, somebody might interpret it as, oh no, the Lord has closed his eyes on us. Yeah, I mean... That is that is kind of a if that's like, you know, really what happened, that would be kind of a freaky thing. I I mean, you know, I think the scariest thing would be to go in there and he's not on the cross. And then you look behind you and he's just standing behind you like, oh, yeah. <laughs> like the Burger King uh, in those Burger King ads. <laughs> Yeah, that's one thing that always creeped me out about the Catholic faith is is uh, they still have Jesus on the cross, like in mm-hmm. all of their uh, religious symbolism. Like he's his his skinny, uh, tortured body yeah. is hanging on the cross, and it's usually right in front and center in Catholic masses, and you got to look at that all the whole time. In uh, Baptist churches where I grew up, um, I, f- I forget the reasoning, but uh, you know their their whole thing is like jesus is off the cross now he's in heaven so why why still have him on the cross so in baptist churches you just see the plain cross jesus is not on it but not the catholics though they they, they want to show you that shit uh it's it's like i mean that's like the ultimate in guilt tripping you know that's like uh you know like your dad like uh busting his ass to like fix the engine in your car and he worked all day and he's all greasy and sweaty and bloody and stuff that would be like making a statue of that in front of your car every time you pull in or something it's like i did this for you look how (laughs) look how greasy and dirty i am remember this it's like i got it jeez i don't gotta see that every time i appreciate it thanks you don't gotta keep showing me that though like it's disturbing cost a lot of people to have like 
uh, I think uh, there, there's a lot of a uh, religious OCD that that happens that uh, that mm. revolves around, especially the Catholic faith, since there are so many um, religion, like so many rituals involved in the Catholic religion. But then, anyway, that's yeah. Well, speaking yeah. of the Catholic religion. Uh, the segment opened up with actually a little bit of sort of a history lesson on some of the actual, actually, uh, you know, the approved miracles uh, by the Catholic Church. And there was only been like three of them. They said there's only been like three approved miracles out of all of these other cases that have been brought up as a miracle. So there's only been three of them that have actually been authenticated by the Catholic Church. There might have been more. There might have been more now, but uh, at that time it was only three. So Suzanne Rainey is a Catholic scholar, and she feels that the parishioners and the Catholic faith led them to see what was not actually there. She believes that the prayer group sees this as a sign that they are successful, even though what they have seen was not actually there. The Catholic Church agrees in the skepticism, and that this, and they also did not authenticate this uh, event as a miracle uh, because they did some tests and they ended up discovering on their with their own evidence that there was no miracle because several weeks after the story was aired the bishop of pittsburgh's commission was an- announced his decision on the events in ambridge uh, they reviewed video and photographs of the crucifix before and after and they found no evidence that a miracle had occurred at the church however they did say that the people who witnessed it were sincere and many are still certain that a miracle did actually occur i love yeah, that I little reference there you know they did say that they were sincere like the catholic church isn't going to be like they were they made it up they were lying nothing happened jesus did not close his eyes it's all a bunch of bullshit <laughs> <laughs> damn man damn pope you you hung over or something you seem a little cranky today <laughs> we've just never heard you say bullshit before whatever get out of my house uh, um yeah and you know and they have the picture on the uh, unsolved uh, wikia here um and yeah, I mean, they show the January 28th, 1989, where his eyes are open, and then the March 24th, 1989, where his eyes are closed. And they look exactly the yeah. fucking same. I it mean, is. it's exactly y- the same. You got some mass hallucinations going on here, folks. I'm totally open to believing in miracles. I am. Um, so am I. I, I. I think that uh, Medjugorje, uh, the Lady of Guadalupe, uh, Miracle of Fatima. I think a lot. Of, I think all that stuff. Totally believe it. The people are just, you know, that the, there's, you know, doctors and shit to verify that. Yeah, she was. She was. She was going to die, and now she's healed. Blah blah. blah. I totally believe that. Uh, Shroud of Turin, uh, you know, I'm open to believing that that's real. It's one, one of my favorite segments. Actually. I think that Shroud. might be one of the most elaborate hoaxes, though, in history. But. Maybe. But then, then you also have the, um, the the Lady of Guadalupe where the uh, Mary is on the uh, cactus cloth, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. You know, like that's I'm, I'm open to believing that's a lot more compelling than this. Um, this is, uh, this, this is very reminiscent of the, uh, Kentucky visions. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's where not all as the, ridiculous. Yeah. Where all the dumb little school kids are going <laughs> into the little clearing in the forest and going, I see gold. I'm staring at right into the sun and now everything's golden. Like, Oh my God, you, <laughs> these are some of the people you see at Walmart at three o'clock in the morning. Um, <laughs> 
So, yeah, I mean, it's 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 kind of like the power of suggestion, you know, someone gets amped up about it enough and believe, you know, they're well, charismatic also think about, about it. it. Think about it. This was in an area in a small town that was dying and they were wanting a miracle. They were wanting to see something that would bring new life to their town and uh this was definitely one of those things and so they saw what they wanted to see you're looking for a hero he's gotta be strong and he's gotta be soon and it's gotta be larger than life Ugh. off key <laughs> <laughs> oh well no the singing's horrible but you know the point was the i song need a was- hero and he's gotta be strong, and he's gotta be fast, and he's gotta be larger what, than life. What movie was that off of? I know that's off some movie. It right? was on the Footloose soundtrack, but I remember it <laughs> from the soundtrack for Short Circuit 2. Oh, yeah. Fucking <laughs> Short Circuit 2 and your knowledge of movies. Both things I find funny for some reason. But, yeah, they were looking for a hero. And, uh, <laughs> and he had to be strong, and he had to be larger than life. And he was. Exactly. Larger than life, that is. Um, so, uh, I don't know what else to say about this case, except it was interesting. Uh, they're, they're, I, you know, I'm not going to say what they saw didn't happen to their face, but um, I don't believe it happened. The surveillance footage shows that. Unless it's one of those things where, oh, you know, like the guy said, it was burned on. Only believers could see it. Or, you know, I could easily... Oh, come on. Give me a break. Yeah, I could know? easily see people defending it like that. What, wouldn't believers be the last people that God would want to see a miracle? Wouldn't, wouldn't non-believers be more the people I don't know. God- I mean, probably, you know, maybe wants to show to his believers, you know, uh, uh, you know, show a miracle as a so sign of believer- respect for their faith, you know, something like that, or way to get so, back so basically god's believers are like his patreon subscribers so like he wants to give his patreon subscribers like a bonus like miracle to be like hey i'm here you know well it's like well hey i'm an atheist why didn't you show me well you you're not subscribed to uh to my uh patreon my religion you know so uh, you don't get the you don't get the bonus god content here sorry about that junior uh, <laughs> that's, well, that's pretty yeah. much how you're saying well it could be i don't know i mean it, it's this is the kind of thing where I'm not really that religious of a person, so um, I can't really relate to a lot of these people that are interviewed here who said they saw a miracle. I'm just looking at it from the perspective of, you know, a logical perspective, and from the evidence that's provided, I definitely do not think anything happened here. No. It's a good story, though. Uh, moving along, we have... This is one uh, from Season 2... Um, that I honestly really thought was a great one, and I think this is a very underrated segment of the show, and it deals with a potential serial killer, as well as it's got all these different sort of juicy elements to it. So you have potential serial killer, you have this young couple who goes missing, uh, is found dead, and... It always stood out to me because of not only how brutal the crime is and some of the other aspects to it, which I'll talk about soon enough, but also because it deals with a fairy. And for me personally, fairies just creep me out because especially at night, you're, you go on a fairy, 
you're on the ferry. You cannot escape. You're just on the ferry until it gets to its final destination. So, if something happened on the ferry, there's no way for you to really get off. It's not like a, a subway where you can get off at the next stop. It's not like a bus where you can get off. You can't get off the ferry. There's no I've never escape. even ridden on a ferry. I think I rid on one. I think I rid. I think I rode on one a while back with my parents because we're you know the kind of it was a short thing where you put your park your car on it and ride on it. But I don't think I've actually been in the, a ferry where you sit down and stuff like that and you park your car or something. I've been on ones where you're in your car and then it you kind of go across the river for a little bit, but nothing like this. So this is the case of uh, Jay Cook and Tanya Van Sulenborg. I don't know if I said that correctly. Kylenborg. And Ooh, is it a German last name? Let me see. I might be able to figure it out. This uh, took place in uh, British Columbia because I think they were uh, from. They took a ferry from Victoria, Canada, to Washington State. Canada, you say? Yeah. Morgan. So they took a ferry from Canada to Washington State, where I currently reside. And so this case starts out on November 18th, 1987. Jay Cook and his high school sweetheart, Tanya Van Sulenborg, took the ferry from Victoria, Canada to Washington State to go camping. Jay was 20 years old. Tanya was 17. That right off the bat is just very strange. My mom watched the segment, too, and she's like, how were they, how how did the mother even let them go? Like my mom was like, I am not letting my daughter date some guy <laughs> who's twenty years old if she's seventeen years old. No way. What? So he was twenty and she was seventeen. Yeah. Oh, that's not that. That's not that. Weird. I I know, but apparently it was to my mom, and it would be for other people. She is underage, technically. Well, there's a Romeo and Juliet law to where uh, you're, you're. I think you're safe until you're like 24 years old. When it comes to the, if if they're if they're at least I think 16 years old, uh, there's some kind of law to where you can be up to 24. Uh-huh. And it, it's you, interesting that it's called uh, Romeo and Juliet. The Romeo. Yeah, and Juliet well, yeah. Law. I mean, it's it's uh, you know. It's one of those things. So I, I, don't, I don't think, think they were 20, 20 or 17 in in Shakespeare because. People rarely ever lived to be 20 or 17 years old in that era. With all the diarrhea going on. Well, more than just that. But anyway, uh, so Jay was 20 years old. Tiny was 17. Uh, the whole I think my mom's whole thing was not the whole, okay, he's older than her. It was the whole letting them go on their own on a ferry at night. So it was their first trip together, and they planned on a romantic getaway. Leona Cook is Jay's mother, and she's quoted here. Jay and Tanya had been going out for about six months, and he was either there or she was here. I think she was quite special to him. Tanya's father, William Van Kulenberg, is then Borg. Kulenborg. I just, Borg, I'm just thinking of Star Trek. Just Resistance is futile. So uh, <laughs> they certainly seem to be good for, for each other. From everything that I could gather, I certainly had no apprehension about Tanya being with Jay. I felt very comfortable with that. 
But sometime during their journey, Jay and Tanya's peaceful vacation turned into a violent nightmare. Jay was driving his father's van. Witnesses reported seeing it drive off the ferry and head south on Highway 101. It was spotted in the town of Hoodsport at about 8 p.m. and an hour later in the town of Allen. Authorities believe they were headed towards a second car ferry from Bremerton to Seattle. It was just an overnight trip. Jay and Tanya were expected to be home the next day. When their families didn't hear from them the following evening, they understandably began to worry. William Van Kulenborg is uh, quoted here again. If Tanya was late for anything, she would always phone. So when Tanya did not phone the next evening when they were supposed to be returning, my wife became apprehensive. So I tried to downplay it for my wife's sake and probably to reassure myself that everything would be okay. However, on the following day when she didn't call, we knew there was something wrong. Indeed, something was very wrong. According to Chief Deputy Ron Panzero of the Saget County Sheriff's Office, Tanya's body was found and she was found murdered. Tanya's body was partially clothed. She had been raped and murdered. We'd found some plastic ties that you would bundle wires together with uh, laying out alongside the road, which is twist, you know, uh, zip ties, pretty much. That's what they are, zip ties. Uh, that was a, a peculiar description of them for me. I was like, plastic ties you would bundle wires together with? What? People d- use those to do that? I thought they just used them to, like, tie newspapers up or do other things. Um, but anyway, so we found some zip ties. Uh, we assumed that they were used to secure Tanya in the van. Now, Tanya, Tanya, you know, Tanya. People in the segment mix it up, too. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm not alone here. What is the proper pronunciation of Tanya? I don't know. Neither do some of the police that are interviewed in this segment. So, but Jay Cook was nowhere to be found. His mother recalls a conversation she had with the police. We didn't know what to think then because they hadn't found Jay, and for a while it looked like Jay might even be a suspect. They told us to be prepared for that. Soon after, Jay's van was found 90 miles away in the city of Bellingham. Two blocks away, police found more plastic ties, the keys to the van, Tanya's driver's license, and a half-empty box of ammunition. They also found a pair of surgical gloves. To Detective Robert Gebo from the Seattle Police Department, the clues comprised an outright taunt. He leaves those behind as a sign to the police that you needn't look for fingerprints because I wore these gloves. And he has confidence that there's nothing that's going to connect him with these crimes. Which makes you think, like, oh, this is definitely a killer who knows what he's doing. And has probably done it before. And will probably do it again. So a short time later, Jay's body was found. He had been beaten and strangled to death. Sergeant Robert Bart with the Shonomish County Sheriff's Office is quoted here. He says, His hands had been bound with some plastic tie wraps. We think the way that Jay died was indicative. Indicative. You got it? Yeah. I'm okay. I'm good. (laughs) It was indicative of things that were seen before inside the prison walls. And things we found in Jay certainly raise a suspicion that the person or people who did this have been in the prison system before. Without telling you anything else, that's definitely a possibility. So, this whole case, to me, it's just one of those things, it's just like, okay, we have this young couple, they're going out, trying to have a good time, they're killed, and then you have this killer who's on the loose, who may or may not be a serial killer, 
And you have the whole thing with the whole creepy sort of aspect of, of the the not it's not a barge, it's a ferry. So you have the the ferry aspect of it, which it's like a it's a waterborne subway or bus basically. Every time you say fairy, I keep thinking I keep thinking you mean like the mystical creature. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't like fairies. Fairies scare me. <laughs> like Mike, what the fuck? Are you, how, are you encountering fairies often in your life? <laughs> Lay off the Mountain Dew there, buddy, or whatever you're spiking it with. All right. So no river fairies. You know, water fairies. Oh, river fairies are the worst because they won't they won't grant you the spells to cross the uh, ogre bridge. That's what you meant, right? <laughs> Different type of fairy, Josh. Different type oh. of fairy. So, oh, okay. Well, I just want to say that we at this podcast are accepting of all types of lifestyles. If that's that, that's kind of fairy. Is that the kind of fairy you're talking about? No. Uh, well, then I just don't know what you're talking about. Then I'm, I'm afraid. So, <laughs> <laughs> so stupid. I don't so, blame anyone for turning the podcast Sergeant Robert right Bart believes that it's most likely that Jay and Tanya met their killer on the 10.20 p.m. ferry from Bremerton to Seattle. We don't know the killer's intentions when he first met these two. We feel that he was out to do some harm and certainly to assault both Jay and Tanya. And from what we have found, I think we can say that he had, his, he had set his sights on Tanya and Jay was in the way. They were friendly, young, and on their first trip, and I think easily fooled. An easy mark. Detective Robert Gebo suspects that this was not the killer's first murder. I think it's safe to say that by the time they exited the ferry in downtown Seattle, they probably were in the company of the man that had killed them. It would seem to me that it's logical that the person has committed crimes like this in the past and has been successful at them. And having been successful, I would certainly say that it's likely he'll continue to do them. So now you have this case that, okay, it's one of those, okay, these two young kids are murdered by a killer who might be a serial killer. And then it gets even more twisted. Because apparently this killer is, what well, this might be the killer, but I, I really do think it's a killer, is sending these creepy greeting cards and letters to the, the victims' families. So the families of the victims. So over the Christmas holidays, just four weeks after the murder of their children, and actually their, their uh, kids were actually killed on Thanksgiving, by the way. Ugh, God, that's awful. Really is. So then over the Christmas holidays, just four weeks after the murder of their children, Jay and Tani's families each received a series of disturbing greeting cards. They were filled with taunting descriptions of the murders. Uh, the offer claimed to be the killer. Now, this is uh, sort of a transcript, kind of a, it's kind of blurry, so I'm going to try to read it. Dear, dearest Jay's father, Graham Cock, uh, greetings and salutations. Hallelujah, bloody Jesus. I am the happiest human being on planet Earth. In fact, I am on the Michael Jackson Victory Tour, celebrating my victory over, and then it doesn't show the rest of it. That, yeah, and it does. It does. I, I was looking at that, which, again, if you would like to look at that letter, you can join our Facebook group, Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. Um, it, it does say something cock. It looks like it says Graham Cock. Yeah. Like, I don't know if that was that, was that a name of somebody involved, or, or is he just saying cock? 
I don't know. And then he brings up the Michael Jackson thing, which is very specific. I mean, that's a very specific thing to bring up. I, I, I'm Michael Jackson's victory tour or whatever. Um, that's, that's and I'm pretty really sure the random. rest he's going to say is celebrating my victory over your son, which is all kinds of fucked up. Well, he's probably going to... They, they or probably the police. Sh- they probably didn't show it because it probably, you know, the police always hold back things that only people involved would know. So that's mm-hmm. probably why they didn't show all of it because he probably went into details that they didn't want the public to know about in case someone comes yeah. forward. You know, that's a good way to vet whether they're a legit source or not. So these greeting cards, they were postmarked from New York, Los Angeles, and Seattle. And all of the cards have been apparently written by the same person. So far, at least six of the greeting cards have been mailed over three different holidays, and authorities still have no idea who sent them. Surprisingly, DNA recovered from the victim and DNA taken from the envelopes do not match. Uh, Chief Deputy Ron Panzero is quoted again here. Uh, the handwriting of these letters and cards is very distinctive, and there are some phrases that are very distinctive. Also, hallelujah, bloody Jesus is a favorite phrase of his. He just continues to make life miserable for these parents who have lost their children. It's important that this individual be caught. Yeah, I mean, that's a fucking understatement, making the life miserable for the parents. I mean, that's that's just, God, that... What a fucking nightmare that would be to not only like lose your kid, but then to get these fucking taunting letters. Yeah. I mean, oh my goodness. I, you know, I say this a lot on the podcast, but like, I can't, I just couldn't put myself in that position. I can't even imagine. I don't have kids, you know, I, I, I but I mean, I just, I can't imagine. And I'm glad I don't, I have the luxury of not having to imagine what that would be like, because that just sounds that sounds torturous. It sounds so brutal. am I. I mean, what it is, it's like pouring salt on their wounds. Yeah, absolutely. Every time they get one of these greeting cards, it's just more salt on their wounds. It's to you know, excuse my French. It it it's fucked up. It's a perfect way to to describe it. Uh, that was English, actually. That was not French. I know. <laughs> it's a term. Well, excuse my French. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. So, police are convinced that the murderer is an ex-convict familiar with the Washington area. They hope that he may have talked about the crime and that an Unsolved Mysteries viewer might be able to identify him. Authorities are also interested in finding out who wrote the strange greeting cards. This case is still unsolved. There's no update. God, I hate at that. All. I hate that, man. I hate it when you're watching, especially on the Amazon, uh, when they, you know, the old, the new old episodes, and you're watching a segment, and they. But apparently, they did identify who sent the greeting cards, but they have not identified the killer. Several possible suspects have been questioned in the case over the years, including serial killer Robert Yates. However, DNA evidence has cleared them all of any involvement. In August 2010, Victoria Cold Case detectives finally identified the person responsible for sending the disturbing greeting cards. He is a man now in his 70s with severe mental issues. It did seem like it was written by somebody with some serious mental health problems. Yeah, to say the least. He readily admitted that he was the author of the cards. Police interviewed him for several hours and now believe he had nothing to do with Jay and Tanya's murders. He probably read about the story in a newspaper and sent the cards from there. Still, it's still fucked up. And really, dude, 
Dude, I don't care mental issues or not, mental health or not. I'm usually a big advocate of this, you know, mental health awareness and shit. But man, if I knew where that guy lived and I was the dad of 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 one of those kids, I'd go and punch that fucking mental case right in his stupid face. I would strangle that motherfucker. Mental illness or not. You I don't, know, I don't think I would do these... that. I'm, I, I'd figure it out, and I'd get like a restraining order against him. Or oh, no. I'd, I'd file I, I, some I, charges against him. But I wouldn't go in and assault him, because then that means I'm going to get in trouble. Because that's what happens when you do that kind of thing. Oh, I, I know. But I think, in that, I think in that case, like the, he's already brought you so much pain that you just don't care at that point what happens to you. Like if you go to jail or whatever, it's, it's like, I don't know. I, 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 would need, I would need some kind of vindication in that scenario. Vindication... I'd have enough indication by having him get charged for me personally. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. But you know, that's, that's the unfortunate me. thing about our legal system is like that. You know, oh, I mean, I guess it is fortunate in a certain extent because you can't have people taking the law into their own hands. But I mean, it's like the people who do this shitty stuff. They never truly get what's coming to them. You know, I mean, yeah. I don't know. It, it, so yeah, you know, sadly, he, Jane Tanya's killer has never been caught. And a reward is being offered in the case. Yeah, I don't really have that much else to talk about this case. Um, I thought it was a really uh, fantastic case for the show. Uh, there is there is the brutality of the killings that was shocking and memorable, and then he had the whole added twisted element of the greeting cards and uh, the fact that it's still unsolved is definitely one that's going to stick with me. And um, the reenactments are really well done. Uh, used the uh, there's some really great creepy mood and atmosphere in the segment. And yeah, yeah, it helps too that I am definitely I'm creeped out by fairies. So not the type of fairies that Josh is thinking of, of though. Yeah. Um, all right. Now, before we go into our next segment, um, this is the part of the podcast where I, I like people to get to know their fellow listener a little bit. You know, it's like that phrase, you want to know who your neighbors are. Well, this is kind of the same thing, but you want to know who your uh, listeners are. Um, this is a story that Shelly Watson confided in me. Um, and again, I'm sorry for spilling the beans on this one, but it was just too interesting to not share with you guys. It was a crazy incident that happened to her um so she lived in new york in a brownstone which is like a like an apartment or something condo maybe i don't know um and she built this well she didn't build it i'm sorry i ruined i messed that detail up uh she was conveying to me that there was already this room in the house uh, kind of like basically a safe, but that people can go in, you know, and it locks and you're like, you know, and it has like provisions and stuff like that. Uh, it's, it's a sanctuary really in the event of break-ins, uh, or anything like that. Um, so she was newly divorced and she had her young daughter with her named Sarah. And, um, what ended up happening was for some reason, uh, three intruders by the names of Burnham, Raul, and Junior actually broke into this house. Now, we know their names from police reports. And um, it was a brutal home invasion. Um, and and she, thankfully, Shelly was able to get up in the middle of the night as these people broke in. And she was able to get her daughter and rush to this room 
this the safety room and basically she had to spend this very long period of time in there as these people ransacked her house and played all kinds of other psychological games with her because she can see them because there's cameras in this room the the house has a security system and there's cameras and um but the room itself is the focal point because what is in that room is actually what the intruders want but uh thankfully they didn't end up getting it um the the police finally came and there was a bunch of other crazy stuff that went on with the uh the the bad guys kind of double crossing each other and this that and the other um but but yeah she ended up safe everything's fine they moved out of that house they're in a different place now but um yeah i'm glad that uh, shelly's all right that that is a crazy story i can't believe that happened or maybe it didn't happen maybe it didn't i don't know that's uh that is up for you to decide um if you would like me to tell a story of something that happened to you in the past uh, consider do, consider donating to us on Patreon. It's the five dollar tier, uh, this particular tier, and you will have a story of your own on the uh, podcast. And and it's a true story, or maybe it's not. Uh, I don't. Yeah, know. Yeah, it sounds pretty like familiar it. to me. I don't think so, Mike. I don't think it does. I don't think there's anything. I think it's a very unique thing that happened to her, and I don't think it does sound familiar. Um, so or maybe it does sound familiar. I don't know, but uh. That was. I'm glad she's all right. All right, let's move on to our final segment here. Now, this is one of my favorite Unsolved Mystery segments of all time, and I don't exactly know why. I think it has to do with the fact that it's on the Ultimate Collection, and back in the, uh, the uh, much leaner times, back in the earlier days, the 2000s, after the Lifetime and the revamp, the shitty Dennis Farina revamp, but before the Amazon episodes were brought back, there was a good 10-year time where you had nothing Unsolved Mysteries anywhere unless you were a uh, crafty uh, downloader of certain torrents and you were able to get the uh, them through the uh, black market of the internet, which I did not know anything about at the time. So all I had was what was on the Ultimate Collection, which was a good amount of content, but... You know, I burned through, man, I went through, I've seen every segment on this chest, the Ultimate Collection or whatever. God, it has to be at least 30 times each, each per segment. Um, so this segment, Bad Chief, uh, is just yet another one. And it's actually got one of my favorite cinematic moments, which I've already posted to the uh, Facebook group by now. It's got one of my favorite scenes ever in Unsolved Mysteries, and I don't know why. I just love how it was shot. Actually, when we interviewed... Um, Kevin O'Brien, um, I, I actually was questioning him about how they achieved the look of Unsolved Mysteries, the graininess and all that. And that's actually uh, one of our previous episodes. If you want to hear uh, an interview with the director of uh, cinematography. Photography. Uh, photography, there you go. Um, from Unsolved Mysteries, from the actual damn show that talked to us, the you know the mere earthlings, uh, you can go and check that out. I think that's like episode number 26 or something. So anyway, uh, this took place in Lyons, Nebraska, which is a small farming town with an even smaller population. In October 1986, Anna Anton, a 34-year-old divorcee, moved into this small community. She was a stranger to the town. Now, this town is so damn small, they got the, they got the mayor of Lyons, Mary Piper, to actually 
comment on this case. She's one of the first people interviewed, which I thought was really cool, you know, like that she did that and that they got her to do that. Because usually, you know, when these kind of murders and stuff take place, you don't have the mayor of the damn city on the Unsolved Mysteries segment talking about it. Well, also, they needed to have someone like her because Anna's family was not interviewed at all. That's true. That's very true. That's a detail that I didn't even notice until you said that just then. None of her family or anything is interviewed. Yeah, that is true. That's that that makes it even more curious. Because you always have the family. They're like an integral part of the segment inter- interviewing the family members, you know. But yeah, that's true. They they do not interview any of her family in this one. That's a very astute observation there, Mike. But anyway, Mary Piper, mayor of Lyons was quoted as saying uh, there was no rational reason why she would move here. People don't move to Lyons, Nebraska, unless they have a job or family or they're returning to a small town. She didn't have any of those. Ten years before she settled in Lyons, Anna had injured her leg in a car accident. Anna's neighbors were happy to lend a helping hand, and her parishioners at her church took turns driving her to and from church. Anna appeared to be a very religious person. She had high morals. She didn't drink. She went to church daily if she had a ride, said her friend Shirley Edgecombe. Shirley Edgecombe lived across the street from Anna and would take her to the grocery store. They became friends, and Anna began confiding in Shirley. Quoting Shirley here, She told me that her ex-husband had been involved in some large drug ring and that she had testified against him and other members of the drug ring, and she was afraid that they were going to harm her. She moved to Lyons to get away from her ex-husband. She did tell me that uh, she chose the apartment that she did because the police chief lived in the apartment right on top of her, and if her ex-husband ever tried to bother her, he'd be leery about doing that with the police car parked out in front. Now, surely, I'm just going to comment here, surely is a product of this time period. Good Lord. This this chick, uh, just ginormous welder glasses, <laughs> uh, just huge permed hair. <laughs> this is one of those chicks I look at and I'm like, if she just if she would just take off those fucking glasses and just, just straighten your hair yep. and just kind of part it maybe to the side, just do some kind of modern uh-huh. style, you know, she she might actually be pretty good That wasn't the style looking. back then. It's just so, so crazy because it's like these people are like in their maybe like late 30s, early 40s, and they look like they're 70 with their fashion choices. I, I know, but that that was the style back then. That was that was that was in. That was, I know that the was, grandma. That was the in look. So December 16th, 1986, Shirley brought over some groceries to Anna's apartment. She was surprised to find the back door locked. Shirley knocked on Anna's windows and called out her name. There was no response. That evening. Shirley tried to deliver the groceries several times, but there was no answer. Anna seemed to have disappeared just as quickly as she arrived. Police Chief Greg Webb, who lived upstairs from Anna, agreed to help. We went in thinking Anna had probably fallen, and there was no, but there was no sign of her. There was an outfit of clothes laid out on the bed, from shirt and jeans all the way to underwear and shoes. And that seemed strange because this was in the wintertime. If you take your coat and your purse and your cane, it seemed only logical that you'd also take your shoes, quoted Shirley. And this, this brings up the do, do people actually lay their clothes out on on their bed, like exactly how they're going to wear it before they put it on? Like, I've heard of that. Like, that's a thing. That yeah, that, do. that is a thing that some people do. I don't do that. What's up with that? I don't get That's weird. I don't get that. But like, why would you why would you like? 
like do you need I, maybe it's more of a girl thing like they need to see how the outfit's gonna look like overall yeah but- i think that might be it i don't think a lot of guys do that i don't take one of my t-shirts out and lay them on the bed and with my shorts <laughs> oh well yep this looks acceptable i'll wear this yeah um surely figured then that she would call some of the people in anna's address book um, now to condescend to millennials real quick in a dress book it was an actual physical book that had binding and it had an alphabetical order these blank pages where you could write someone's last name and then first name and you'd write their phone number and address my parents had one they had several actually back in the day and i specifically remember referring to an address book when i wanted to call somebody on my landline telephone um But it was at that point that Greg, the police chief, took the address book from Shirley and said, why don't you let me do that? It's my job, after all. He then later called Shirley and said that he called all the numbers in the book and no one heard anything from her. Again, okay, now I just got to take a moment here. Talk about pesky fucking neighbors. Good Lord. Like, even getting the police chief involved, like, going to that extent, like, I mean... I get that, like, they're friends and all that kind of stuff, but, like, if I was Anna, and say I did just want to, like, go out, and I just didn't feel like telling anybody, and maybe I went out for a few days to go on vacation or something, and then I come back to find that, like, the police have been called, and that my house has been, like, you know, entered without my consent, like, I'd be like, geez, lady, like, can you stay out my business? You know, but, I mean, thankfully... It's a small town. Uh, This type of stuff never happens. So when it does happen, they don't really know the normal reaction. The reaction would be just, oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. She's gone. Let's get everybody involved. Let's even get uh, that uh, that crime fighting, crime solving dog. Get him over here. That almost sounded like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) They're going to eat me. (laughs) My God! Oh my God! They're eating her, and then they're gonna eat me! Oh my God! <laughs> That's a uh, what? What movie is that? That's a guess? reference, folks, to one of the best "So Bad It's Good" movies I have ever seen. It's called Troll Two. <laughs> Do yourself a favor, find it, check it out sometime. It is hilarious. I got not watch. just that one scene. There's other scenes too, where there's a. <laughs> There's a scene where uh, the father of this kid is getting pissed at this other this other kid. He's like, I won't let you, you know, piss on hospitality. I won't allow it. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> I, I got to put that down on my list right now of movies to watch because I've been meaning to watch that one. And I always forget the damn name of, the, of it. I know Mr. IMDB over here would know it. So I have to watch that now. But uh, anyway... Um, so yeah, to me, like growing up, my, my dad was all about privacy and he was a very big stickler for privacy. So, uh, this, this here is just like raising all kinds of red flags in my life as far as like, geez, man, like who would want neighbors like that? But in this case, it was good because there was something nefarious going on and this set the wheels in motion. Well, also think about it. The cop is right there. So that wasn't that out of the ordinary because the cop lived right above her. So it would make sense to ask him for help 
Yeah. She's right so there. 11 days after Anna disappeared, her body was found in a remote field. She had two 38 caliber bullets found in her torso. Since the crime scene was outside of Lyons jurisdiction, Nebraska State Police Investigator Gerald Krieger was called in to take on the case. He's quoted as saying, upon observing the surroundings around Anna, it was very apparent that she did not succumb her death there, that the body had been moved and somebody had left her out and was careful in reference to not leaving anything behind. She was in an unclad condition. It appeared that the body had been cleaned and had been there for quite some time. Surprisingly, the autopsy revealed that Anna's blood alcohol level was 0.22, very high for someone who supposedly did not drink. That's very high for somebody who does drink. Uh, 0.22, that's that's for me and my body weight and my height. A 0.22 would be the equivalent to about 10 or 11 beers. Damn. Uh, yeah. That that's about that would bring me Holy to about point shit. Yeah. So yeah, that's a pretty that's pretty high. That's pretty probably high. Probably even more for me. So my body body type is pretty yeah, skinny. You, that you'd be on your ass on ten or eleven beers, Mike. I don't even know high. if I could even do that. Yeah, I think I think um point two eight or point three, that's close to alcohol poisoning right there. So yeah, that is yeah. very high. Um and you know what's like kind of morbid about the whole thing? Like they're able to determine that her blood alcohol level is 0.22 because when you die, your heart stops beating and any alcohol that's in your blood is still there indefinitely because your liver isn't going to clean your blood and remove the alcohol from it. So whatever you did, you know, whatever drinks you had in your system the, at the time of your death will be in your system indefinitely. So you're going to be drunk. Was- even yeah, when you're dead. Yeah, exactly. Like you're going to remain in that state of drunkenness uh, forever. I, I always found that kind of morbid. So, uh, quoting um, Shirley here, after they found the body, Jerry Krieger came over to the place and he wanted to know everything about Anna. It was at that point that Shirley gave Jerry a note that Anna had given her and told her not to open unless something happens to her. Jerry Krieger was quoted as saying, her feelings were was that Anna's ex-husband had caused the death. She had related to me that her ex-husband had had been involved in narcotics. He was a drug dealer and was very fearful for her life. We quickly determined that Anna's ex-husband did have an alibi and that he was not involved in drug activity. And I just couldn't understand why Anna would fabricate this information. End quote. The police officers working on the case agreed to gather at a local cafe in Lyons to compare notes. Chief Webb was among them. Knowing that Anna was in the same building as Chief Webb, Investigator Krieger decided to quiz Greg. In the segment, he asked Webb, were you and Anna ever intimately involved? And the actor who plays Greg Webb did a pretty good job, I think, conveying this kind of sleazy, shady yeah, police officer. Yeah, really did. That's one he, of the things that makes it so memorable, I think, is yeah. that, is the bad cop aspect of it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but one of the things that always gets me, always grabs my attention, always upsets me, is a dirty cop. Whether it's a cop who's taking money under the table, whether it's a cop who's selling and distributing drugs, or whether it's a cop like this. So, um, that is always something that upsets me, because they're supposed to serve and uphold the law and protect us, and when they're breaking the laws that they're supposed to uphold, I mean, that is absolutely frustrating. Yeah. 
So investigator Krieger asked Webb, were you and Anna ever intimately involved in, in the, how this guy plays this answer off is, is really good acting. He's like, no. And he just kind of like turns away and then he looks back, you know, like he, you know, he's hiding something. And upon him doing that, the investigator asks again, were you and Anna ever intimately involved? And he kind of like rolls his eyes and he goes, yes, we met at Arnold's Park and, you know, at a bar, blah, 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 blah. And then one of the other investigators goes, um, Greg, could you uh, give us a moment alone? We have to discuss something. So then Krieger comes back on on camera and he goes, due to the fact that he lied to me, being police officer, especially a chief of police during a major investigation like this, and then thinking back to the crime scene, my thoughts were thinking back strongly that Greg was a suspect. Two days after Anna's body was found, Krieger and a lab technician were performing tests in Anna's apartment to search for bloodstains. During the test, Greg was upstairs in his apartment, quoting officer or investigator Krieger. During the test, you could hear someone moving around upstairs. Oh. It that, did sound. It did sound as if someone was l- trying to listen in. That was quote. such a suspenseful moment in this segment because it, it was just such a cinematic scene. And that's a scene. And that's when they cut to the scene that I love. They show the scene outside of the house at night, and all you see is the silhouette of the investigator with his flashlight inside mm-hmm. the house. And then they just pan the cam or they tilt the camera up to the upper apartment where you see yeah. Greg. You know, this shadowy figure, Greg Webb, walking around. It was just a beautifully shot. Well, segment. I mean, yeah, this this whole segment is it has some really great movie quality direction and cinematography. So the police used a special chemical called aluminol, which causes drops of blood hemoglobin to glow in the dark, even if they've been washed away or are small and faded. We found traces of blood in Anna Anton's apartment that led all the way up to Greg Webb's apartment. My main concern at this time was obtaining a search warrant to Greg Webb's apartment, quoted uh, investigator Krieger. During the investigation, Greg Webb left his apartment. Five days later, armed with a warrant, investigator Krieger searched the chief's apartment. We did find a mop that contained blood that matched the same kind as Anna Anton's. In the closet, they found a military coat with bloodstains on it that matched the same type of blood as Anna, Anna Anton as well. Quoting him again, as I started researching Anna, I realized that she had two separate lives, one in Lyons, where she was very religious, and one in Arnold's Park, where she was known as a bar floozy, which I think that's kind of because it's hilarious because a like that's such an outdated term, like a like you floozy wearing those. I can see your knees, you whore. Uh, But she was known (laughs) as a bar floozy and she'd carry on with men. This is where she met greg webb at this bar that was you know i guess they never really make the distinction how far away arnold's park is from it Lions seems like the, it's not that far yeah I, I would think it would not be that far away yeah so that's where they met and so she was living this double life and i also love the scene when she's walking into the bar all stumbling she, around yeah and she's supposed to be portraying this hoe you know and she's like talking to all these yeah. old bar flies and she even goes up to this like like 80 year old old fart at the bar and she's like oh you're looking better every day and he's like well thank you <laughs> <laughs> i thought that was kind of a funny scene it was very uh cute Wholesome. you know it was very 90s and you know or 80s whatever you want to call yeah, very, it very there's a lot of 80s charm in that and that yeah it's charm it's charm you know you could look at that and be like oh that's corny that's that looks so I, dated. I call it i call it charming i don't call yeah. it cheesy because it's not a casserole it's not a bowl of mac and cheese 
Ooh, I call it charming. So Greg and Anna became friends. When Anna told him that she was looking for a place to live, he suggested that she move into a place in his building that was unoccupied. Investigator Krieger says, I think Anna moved here with the anticipation that her and Greg may have something in common and maybe eventually getting together and even marriage. Anna was infuriated with Webb when she found out that he had another girlfriend. Shirley comes in here at this moment saying, Anna seemed to be preoccupied with the fact that he had this other girlfriend and the fact that they were not married and apparently sleeping together. At night, she heard them upstairs making love and it bothered her, so she would turn the stereo on. She felt that it was a sin to the point that she would sprinkle holy water on the steps and on the doorknob. And I think this is another angle of this story why I like it so much. Because, you know... They just got done showing how much of a, you know, kind of bar floozy she was. And then they turn around and they show her as this super religious nut sprinkling holy water yeah. around the apartment because two people are upstairs having sex. Well, I mean, you know? th- there are people like that. That's not that uncommon to have people who lead these double lives where they're, you know, super religious and things like that, but they're also committing these sins and things like that. I mean, sometimes some of the most devout religious people are also the people you see at the bar later or somebody, they have this, you know, these hidden sins that they don't show to people at the congregation, you know, at church. And you just look at the Catholic church. Yeah. This is a great example. <laughs> um, not touching that one with a 10 foot pole. Although no, I do pardon. recommend the film, uh, spotlight, which does talk about, uh, the, the sexual molestation in the Boston church. Uh, it, it follow, it's more of a, it's more from the perspective of the journalists and Michael Keaton's in the cast. He does a great job as well as, um, come on. I know his name. He's the actor who played the Hulk in the new Marvel. No, the new Marvel movies, not ever Norton. The other guy, damn it. He was also in Zodiac. Shit. <laughs> Hemingworth? Chris Hemsworth? No, not Chris Hemsworth. He wasn't in Zodiac. I'm not a movie guy. I don't know. <laughs> Just but throwing it, out names at this but point. But anyway, he, he's, uh, he's the other guy who plays Bruce Banner. I'll probably remember the name like afterwards. I, I cannot believe it is not coming to me right now. It's just not there. Um, but anyway, it's a really good movie. I highly recommend it. So... You know, Anna's freaking out. Now, I can understand if Anna's freaking out because Greg came off as a guy who was going to be with her and even moving it. And, and again, what, what kind of a dumbass is Greg Webb being like, hey, come in and move in in the apartment underneath me, knowing that he's a man. Exactly. Whore. Yeah. I mean, yeah, really. <laughs> you know, and he's going to be bringing home chicks and banging them. And then he's got this. I mean, that is just the definition of stupidity. Talking about shit and where you eat. I mean, good Lord. Like, hey, I like you. Come in, move in the apartment underneath me. We're going to be together. You're going to move to Lions and think that something's going to happen with us. Psych. Now you're going to listen to me bang some other chick. I mean, of course she would be upset because and angry about lying. that. Because I was oh, lying. Because I was lying. Oh, that was painful, Mike. Why'd you do that to me? Thought we were friends. Um, that's the point. It's just this is part of the so bad it's it's good aspect of this podcast. <laughs> so, uh, investigator Krieger learned that on the night of Anna's death, Greg Webb was intoxicated. Uh, he believed that the murder could have occurred during a confrontation when Anna found out about Greg's girlfriend. 
It was learned that during the following day, in the early morning hours, Greg was seen carrying something out to the trunk of his car. That turned out to be Anna Anton. Greg was careful to remove her clothes and clean the body. It is possible that Anna's body was left in that particular farmer's field because Greg Webb knew the land and that it would cause jurisdiction problems for the authorities. Then, of course, they have an update um, where Greg Webb was caught. Now, there's two different updates that before I find. Before that, before that, I want to mention this great scene. I, I really love the way they ended this segment. I think I know where you're going with this. With and I the told shot you. of Greg walking in the field carrying yes. uh, her dead body. Yes, that was a great scene. It was shot. I mean, not not great in the sense of dead body. I love like, that scene so it, much. Oh my no. god! And I, it, it, that was a beautiful, beautifully shot scene. It really was. Um, uh, like I said, that's this is a really well directed segment. I mean, this was cinematic in multiple different ways. There's a lot of bizarre murders on Unsolved Mysteries, and the fact that they, you know, this one just really, really stands out. You know, I've seen a lot of the murders segments at this point. Um, I would almost be willing to wager that I've seen almost all of them at this point, and, and this one still stands out as one of the best. Yeah, so he was captured. Um, his... In 1991, Anna's mother passed away without ever seeing her daughter's killer apprehended. But two years later, Webb was discovered living in Florida, again with Florida, Yay! under the assumed name of Gregory Jim Weber, working as a construction worker. When his colleague saw his face on a rerun of the broadcast, he immediately contacted the authorities. Although he was charged with first-degree murder, Webb later pleaded guilty to manslaughter. He was sentenced to 7 to 18 years in prison in 1996, and Webb was released from prison on August 22, 2002. The duplex where Anton lived in the lower apartment and Webb in the upper was demolished in 2008. Now, this just pissed me off when I saw this update, because I'm like, manslaughter? That's murder. That's not just manslaughter. Also, eight years? I know. Eight fucking years? For this fuckface? I mean, the only thing... murdered somebody in cold fucking blood? The only legal stance that I can think of is that whole crime of passion kind of thing where it wasn't premeditated, it was in the moment, blah, blah, blah. Apparently that apparently that isn't as bad as pr- if there's any kind of premeditation murder is murder then you're doing more time for me personally. Murder What's is that? murder whether it's premeditated or not. When you take someone else's life, the sentence should be exactly the same for me personally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I agree with Especially that. Especially with someone like this who took who was smart enough. He was trying to do all this stuff. He knew what he did was wrong. He didn't come out like if it was an instance where somebody it was by accident and they admitted it and it was an immediate admission of guilt and it was all of that kind of thing. Okay, fine, but that's not what happened with with this guy. He he went out of his way to cover his tracks and well, didn't do very well in terms of covering up the blood and, and all that kind of thing. But I mean, he goes in and he knows oh, the jurisdiction would be a problem. So he goes and dumps her body in a field somewhere in a Native American, uh, a Native American land. 
He takes out $3,000 from his account and then flees. This is not a guy who just accidentally killed somebody and then, oh, we deserve, deserve some sympathy or a, uh, a you know, a, a get let off a little bit for his crime. It's a bunch of fucking bullshit. Yeah, it really is. I can't believe I can't believe it when you hear like some cases on here that it's like they dole out these life sentences like it's candy. And then other times it's like. Like uh, that that drug case where the guy had the pool table that rose up and yeah. all that and had the tunnel. Yeah, that guy served like eight years. You know, it, 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 he's like this and, major drug lord. Yeah, and then you got you know? stuff like uh, the 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 nudist colony guy. He got life. He got life in prison. I get it. You know, molesting a kid. I understand that. He deserves life in prison. But this guy deserves life as well, if you ask me. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to give that, the nudist guy, life... And especially he's a cop. Like, what is this whole, you know, we're, we're giving a cop, the cop a slap on the wrist or something because he's a cop? I don't know what is going on. What Certainly appears that way. What went on here? The it's hell? interesting to note that uh, on the VHS rip, they have Robert Stack doing a uh, voiceover talking about thanks to a viewer watching Lifetime, yeah. Greg Webb was caught, and uh-huh. then they showed um, footage of investigator Krieger who looked like he had aged a bit since the segment. And he's talking about how Webb was a disgrace to the badge and blah, blah, blah. But on the DVD, they actually show the tipster with the nineties background, you know, that I posted and, on the group. And on time. Amazon, they show that too, but they don't show the investigator. Yeah. No, I think yeah. they might've showed the investigator too. I need so to watch, the, I don't, on, I'm on not the, completely uh, sure though. So that tells me on the lifetime airings of Unsolved Mysteries, they were cutting stuff out too. Like the, I, Unsolved Mysteries, man, I'm get, I'm like getting more and more confused what the real like master version of it is because there's like different little. It, it nuances. would probably be the ones that aired originally on NBC. Would probably be the uncut broadcasts. Um, the ones that are air- aired on Lifetime, there were some things that were missing. But then some of the stuff that's on Amazon are actually stuff that wasn't on the Lifetime airing. So it, it is kind of strange. I also get- heard, read somewhere that, I don't know the validity of this, but someone was saying some update where Film Rise and Amazon would only be releasing eight seasons. And that doesn't make sense to me because there were 13 technically. So almost like when they get into CBS territory, that's like a whole nother deal that they have to strike or something. Maybe or the lifetime stuff. Maybe that's a whole different sort of deal they have to make or something. I don't know. Um, but I don't know for sure, folks. But that's kind of I read that on the sitcoms online forums that that's kind of might be the case. Um, if so, that's a bummer. But. I guess I could understand it, you know, because it's this, it's, it's no longer, it's the CBS airings and then the lifetime stuff, there's different rights and so on. But, um, yeah, there are differences of course with this segments on Amazon as well, but this one is pretty much the same as it is on the box set. So if you don't have the box set, Bizarre Murders box set, this is on season two. So you can definitely check it out on season two. On Amazon Prime. I forgot the exact episode, but 
All right, folks, that is literally all the time I have. I'm running overtime here uh, as far as time for me to go to my stupid karaoke gig. Well, it's not stupid. It pays the bills. <laughs> um, so anyway, if you want to check us out on YouTube, my YouTube account is uh, youtube.com slash dancing with ghosts. I uh, do uh, video game reviews, uh, t- food taste testing, uh, vlogs. Um, I just did a vlog. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but uh, I used to do stand up comedy. Uh, way back in the day. Would you like to see footage of Josh from five years ago attempting to be funny in front of a crowd of people? Well, go over to my YouTube channel and my latest vlog. I talk about that and I show footage of it. Mike's YouTube channel is youtube.com slash OCP communications. He does movie reviews and he gets very passionate about it. And sometimes he'll even try food too. So uh, anyways, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, Enjoy the rest of your week. We will see you next week. Goodbye. See ya. So, you don't do the Barbara and Adam part. You just do the part where she has. I insert. Ghosts. I insert the Patreon's names in the. You Barbara. just have go. Well, no, because then she'd be dead. Oh. So I, I they would find go, themselves stuck haunted. Or, or yeah, haunting. I'd, I'd oh. find them. I'd I'd find not them haunting the place. I would have the Beetlejuice thing and have it be where they own a house and there's ghosts haunting it and they try to get Beetlejuice to get rid of these people haunting their house or you could do something else um yeah that's one that one's a little too i'm trying to think of other plots right now oh what about yeah yeah go go with yeah that's that's a good one uh okay uh and that that i can easily insert just a single person to you remember that that's one of the few movies i've seen uh i don't know i'll just fucking Want to start with the crucifix oh. thing? Because that's just... That's the one that we just want to burn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's fine. Okay. That's cool. All right. Um, we're 46 now, right? Episode 46? Yeah. I think so. So much fucking pre-chat on this one. I'm going to have to, like, edit the pre-chat. Usually I just take the pre-chat. You won't have I that just... much pre-chat on mine, just this little bit. Here, let's take a cut. i got to take a piss. 128.49. Well, i got to take a break, too. I need to take a... Do all that as well. Ugh. It's really hot in here. <laughs> Mike, are you there? Uh, this song is called Mike is a Loser. I met him on YouTube and he watched a lot of movies.
shit. Are you back, Mike? Yeah. Oh, oh, uh, um, I was just warming up for karaoke tonight. You didn't hear any of that. <laughs> Whoa. Hey. So I'm a loser, huh? Um, oh, gee, Doc. <laughs> I know you're just messing around. <laughs> yeah, I'm just fucking with you. <laughs> it's fun to fuck with you. I like fucking with you. Are you eating? Yeah, I had a little bit of this uh, granola bar that my mom really likes, and I could see why. This thing is delicious. Mm. Delicious, baby. Gets it, and she gets it from uh, Dutch Brothers. Mm, very nice. So, yeah. All right, we're back now, all right? So, December 16th, 1986, Shirley brought some groceries over to Anna's apartment. She was supposed to uh, find the back door. She was surprised. Oh, fuck me. The ass. (laughs) Fuck me in the ass. (laughs) Damn it. Edit. (laughs) Fuck me. Fuck me. So, from Robocop, Uh, the whole scene where the the guy's trying to rob a convenience store and he comes in and sees Robocop and he shoots at him and he's like, fuck me! Fuck me! Fuck me! (laughs) And then Robocop just bends the the butt of the gun and then just punches his ass into a a cooler. It's a great scene. Mike, you need to get a Robocop tattoo. If I ever did decide to do tattoos, I'd probably do some RoboCop related thing. Maybe the OCP logo or something. I don't know. If you went to my guy here in Jacksonville, he'd be able to do a great like RoboCop kind of portrait thing with his yeah. gun, and his visor. It'd be that. would be a really tight action. Dead or alive, you're coming with me. And then, yeah, that could be like the phrase underneath it, or don't like don't mess with OCP. Or I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so let me get back into this. Yeah. Um, 